and here we are stuck in the Arctic Ocean. We can't turn around because the wind is so strong, it'll send us into uncontrollable surfs, and we'll start surfing uncontrollable and breach and dump. And, you know, I'm carrying a satellite phone. I'm carrying colored smoke signals, uh, survival gear all on me, waterproof strapped to my body. But, you know, at that point, it's going to be like if we're clinging to the side of these cliffs and our canoe's smashing in the waves on the rock and I managed to get a sat phone call out, it's going to be like, here's where you can find the bodies. Adventure Sports Podcast, episode number 99. Adventures in the Canadian Wilderness with Jim Baird. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. Jim Baird is a web video producer, videographer, writer, photographer, and talent. But above all, he's an adventurer. From solo trips paddling the Kasagami River to an 800-mile snowmobile expedition across the Northwest Passage, Jim is no stranger to the outdoors. And he's here today with me to share some of his experiences with you. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Good to have you. So let's start out by telling everybody who you are, what it is you do, and how did you end up in this lifestyle of adventure? Well, you know, it started when I was a kid, and uh, I grew up where I spent a lot of time in what we call crown land here, public land in the States, and I guess was able to just kind of go off on my own. It started, you know, with my parents when I was younger, but I was I sort of had the freedom to explore um, fishing and, and, and paddling and, you know, portaging into small lakes and camping out and that kind of thing. Um, since I was a little kid, I actually, my brother and I slept in a tree fort we built for a, we built, uh, for a month straight once. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody was just like, my my mom's friends were like, oh my God, you're the best kids ever. Like, they just, they're just living off the land out there. I haven't even seen them for like, you know, hours. <laughs> like, wow. You know, so uh, I guess that was good because we weren't around bugging. My parents are getting in trouble, at least not that they could see. Um, and then I guess I started um, just researching bigger trips. I always had so much confidence in the outdoors because of my upbringing. And uh, so, I, you know, I started researching stuff. I'm like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to go to the Northwest Territories? I could do a fly-in trip on the Nahani River. And next thing you know, I was just doing it. And it started out where I'd just be paying out of pocket and i just head up there and i take pictures and I, you know, I loved it. And then I started trying to do more and more difficult things. And then I I got a good camera and I I submitted some and I said well why don't I try some articles and you know long story short I ended up uh, making some contacts at uh, some magazines um including uh, Field and Stream and uh, Outdoor Canada I also write for and uh, you know also some uh, like adventure magazines like Explore and and um, so they started running some of my stuff and then I started uh, producing web videos and I kind of you know sort of learned how. Uh, the the ropes with that, which actually can be pretty 
I guess uh, it could be pretty complicated, the whole video, you know, realm. But, uh, you know, I learned that I really enjoyed it. And so, you know, I was able, I'm now able to sort of fund my trips through sponsors, tourism boards and, and gear brands and and magazines and, um, and digital uh, platforms. And so I guess that's kind of uh, who pays me. And at the end of the day, I get to go out there and just do these freaking awesome adventures but, uh, you know, also manage to actually make money at it. Now, unless you really like writing and you really like video and, and doing video and, and, and basically sales, you calling sponsors and trying to you really your hardest to uh, do a really good job, of, you know, to get a lot of eyeballs on your sponsor's gear. Unless you like that part of it, you're probably better off just to do another job and do this stuff for vacation because it can be a lot of work, but it's also really rewarding. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at that lifestyle and think, oh, man, that's the easiest thing ever. You know, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to live the life and I'm just going to shoot some some video and take some pictures and write a little bit about it and, and people will pick it up. But, you know, obviously mm-hmm. that's the hardest part of it. One, you have to be a really good writer. And I got to say, I've, you know, I've been reading some of your stuff and you are a really good writer. It's not just blowing smoke. Uh, you have a, a real talent there. So that fits in naturally, obviously, and uh, it makes it a little bit easier for you. But it's the whole marketing thing that is is always difficult. And it sounds like, you know, a little bit of talent, a little bit of luck, you know, you've managed to snowball this into something big. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm always trying to grow it. Uh, and you know, I I think um, when my website, theadventure.ca is a place where I'm posting a lot of stuff and uh, a lot of my own content and also uh, content from other contributors. And I mean, that's, uh, you know, a great, uh, great, I guess, platform of of my own that uh, seems to be taking off now. Uh, But, you know, I hope really one day that uh, I can kind of, um, you know, use this to influence other people. I mean, I, I hopefully already do. Hopefully other people look at me and say, I want to do that. And they try to get into it and maybe I can help uh, you know, they can learn a few things from me on, on the key things you gotta, you gotta do to be able to get out there and do this. And also, I, I hope that, uh, what I do also makes an impact on conservation on some of our, our wild spaces and that kind of thing too. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, you, uh, you parlayed perfectly into my next question for you. Um, You've managed to to do something good with this this way of life, and obviously, uh, and do good things for society as well. What would your words of encouragement and maybe some tips uh, be for people who wanted to try uh, to do what you're trying to do? Um, I'd say uh, be an entrepreneur. You know, uh, keep working really hard and and just don't give up. Uh, you got to really believe in yourself, and it's a slow build, you know. But the opportunities that exist nowadays, like you know, people come at me like I'm not I'm not the kind of guy that is you know in the Red Bull uh, X Games necessarily. Um, I'm not a, or I'm not in the Olympics, and but you know I I look at myself and sponsors kind of look at me like an athlete, and because what I do is obviously athletic. Um, you know, I'm not uh, a professional surfer, but I kind of try to work with sponsors in a somewhat of a similar way, um, but with a little bit more on um, my specific content creation. Um, and I think uh, nowadays, even with the professional now, the, you know, the professional rock climbers you see in the X Games and stuff like that, um, you know, they uh, 
uh, they, they get asked by a sponsor, not how many mountains have you climbed or, you know, how many competitions have you won? They get asked, you know, how, how, what's your, how many likes do you have, followers do you have on your Instagram <laughs> or your YouTube channel? And right. so, you know, that nowadays um, it's a slow build, so don't get discouraged. But nowadays you actually can kind of build your own following um, with uh, certain things you can find on the Internet through social media and, and stuff like that too, and as well as just keep practicing your writing, your photography, and, and get a good camera and good pictures. Uh, good sponsors want pictures of their gear, so you can give them those pictures. And um, and uh, you can you can get sponsors that way, and also video footage also helps too. So, you know, I guess the best thing you can say is just – is just really try, go at it, be be a salesman. I mean, don't be afraid to pick up the phone, make contacts, and and build on your relationships. Yeah, it makes, you made some excellent points there, and you're right. You know, people who are willing to sponsor you by by paying for you to do this kind of stuff, their whole point of it is not to let you go out and have fun. Their whole point is to get their stuff in front of people's eyes. So, mm-hmm. so the bigger the following you have, you know, the the more important uh, in their eyes you are. That's yeah, the, so it's all about point. what you can do for them. You know, if you call them up and you say, "Hey, I want this much gear for free, or I want X amount of money and X amount of gear." You know, at the end of the day, you want to be able, and also from my standpoint, I don't want to, I I never use gear that isn't awesome, that I wouldn't be using otherwise, because you also have to look at, you know, the people that are watching you, you don't want to give them, like what I do is hardcore, I can't use a piece of gear that's going to suck out there and fake that it's good, because I'm doing video so I'm doing a video, and if something breaks, and I, you know, I, uh, my rope breaks because I use a crappy rope and wash down the river, I'm not going to go out there and tell somebody else you got to have this kind of rope because you know if they, <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to screw them over, right? When they're in the middle of nowhere, so you know, I think uh, uh, you got to be careful on both sides that you, you, you don't, that you give your sponsors what they want, and also the people that are looking at you that are relying on you to tell you what's the good, the quick gear, what's not, what works, what doesn't. You got to be true to them too. Yeah, absolutely. People aren't dumb; they'll pick up on that stuff uh, pretty quickly. And you don't want to uh, you don't want to come across as though you think they're dumb at the same time. You know, if you're trying to pawn some lousy equipment off on them, they're going to get pretty ticked and they're going to yeah, walk away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could think of some funny scenarios there, but anyways. <laughs> well, we'll get into funny later on, I'm sure. Okay. So. You've done a lot of stuff. I mean, I was watching uh, watching some of your YouTube stuff and reading some of your articles. What what would you say is one of your most amazing experiences that that just really you know that you latched onto in this adventure life that you're leading? One of the experiences that I latched onto, like what's my my favorite adventure? Yeah, it just sticks with you. If you're sitting down in a bar with a beer and somebody walks up to you and says, "I know you," so what's what's the best thing you've ever done? What's that story? <laughs> Um, I think, I don't know, that's that's a really tough question, but I think possibly one of the most epic expeditions I ever did uh, was one where we traveled from Shefferville to Quebec to Hopedale, Labrador via four rivers. Uh, we went down the DePaul and up the George River, which is a huge, powerful river. We tracked up this river for, I think, over nine miles, and we crossed the three heights of land. And what a height of land is, is basically a divide, either between two watersheds or, uh, for example, in between two rivers. You cross over from one river to another, 
Um, there's going to be a point where you stop going up river and you start going down river and that kind of one little space in the middle, that's the height of land. So it's really interesting to sort of travel in these traditional ways and, and really get a feeling for how the land lies going up and up river and then through lakes and up in elevation, portage around creeks until there's no trees. And then finally seeing a trickle of water going the way you're going and then following it and going down elevation, all of a sudden the trees come back. And, you know, some of the things when you're out here, I mean, this one in Labrador, we paddled four rivers, including the Adlatok. Um, there's actually a story on it on my uh, site, theadventure.ca. Um, but one of the, the cool things about it was it's just the scenery, the fishing is unreal. And uh, some of the wildlife that you see out there is just, it, it just doesn't compare. When you're in a spot where you're 200 miles from the nearest road, it's so like unmolested by people that um, things are really in, in much closer to their natural state. Yeah, that as you're describing that, that makes me makes me think if I were out there, and I don't, I can't say I've been to 200 miles back in uh, in the wilderness uh, mm. from a, a a local road, but it paints a picture of the early explorers. I mean, you ever get that feeling? You're out there, you're just thinking, man, this is what these guys went through. What I'm going through right now, because there's there's just absolutely. no support here, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and and what and also just kind of, uh, I mean, we're traveling like, uh, you know, the first people, first nations, like used to travel through these areas and, 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 uh, live, you know, a couple hundred years ago and even less in some cases, you know, so that's pretty cool. So I'd say maybe that one, the Adla talk via the Dupaw river and George river, 33 days in the bush, probably about one of the toughest trips you could come up for a month long spans of time but my brother and i also did a trip on uh, victoria island which is uh about 350 kilom or sorry 350 miles north of the arctic circle and we were out there for about a month a little over a month and we paddled this whitewater river where you know there's we're we're like not a, there's not a tree that's substantial you can't really light anything more than a tiny little fire with twigs so if you dump in this bone chilling water you get hypothermia you can die just me and my brother out there you know we're catching fish on every cast lake trout arctic char we saw over a hundred muskox we saw caribou um, it has we saw over 100 caribou. It has its difficulties, but um, once the river ended, we had to paddle 100 miles on the Arctic coast. Not the end of the world, except for one part of it um, is a place called Minto Inlet, where there's sheer 300 foot cliffs that stretch on for about 15 or 20 miles. And what ended up happening to us is we got caught in a storm along these cliffs and we're in a freaking canoe and we're paddling in like eight foot swells. Thank God that the swells were more abrupt or we would have died. And wow. here we are stuck in the Arctic Ocean. We can't turn around because the wind is so strong, it'll send us into uncontrollable surfs and we'll start surfing uncontrollable and breach and dump. And, you know, I'm carrying a satellite phone. I'm carrying colored smoke signals, uh, survival gear all on me, waterproof strapped to my body. But, you know, at that point, it's going to be like if we're clinging to the side of these cliffs and our canoe's smashing in the waves on the rock and I managed to get a sat phone call out, it's going to be like, here's where you can find the bodies. Do you know what I mean? Because, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, because planes can't fly and that kind of thing. Anyways, we ended up getting through that and the weather broke and we were just like, never will we, 
you know, we were the first, you know, we, we shouldn't have attempted when we saw the weather wasn't very good. We shouldn't have attempted doing that in the first place. So it's a hell of a way to learn your lesson, but, um, it was a uh, quite a memorable trip and, and awesome in the end too. Yeah. That's when your call becomes a, a simply a, an extraction uh, mission and not a rescue mission or, a, well, you know, we a couldn't, I mean, mission. you don't even have that option when you're in the Arctic like that. Right. I mean, it was summertime, but you know, like the storm was too powerful for to fly. So I ended up, by the time we managed to get to, um, we, we got close to shore and the waves surfed our canoe and started smashing it on the rocks. And we were literally swimming in the ocean, hauling our canoe and our gear out as the waves smashed the canoe. And they broke this canoe and tore we had what's called a pack boat. It's kind of like internal, almost like frame of like a tent. Um, with like a, a plastic coating and it's actually pretty durable. You can run all kinds of rapids in it, but it was getting mangled. And so, you know, here our canoe smash and we just got out of the uh, river or got out of the ocean before, uh, and the one little crevice in the, uh, in the cliff where we could get out. And so, you know, I got, it get dark. There's no drinking water. We're we're stuck on this little kind of table in these cliffs, and we had to pump our drinking water out of this little rainwater puddle that's got goose poop in it. And I ca- I called into the, on my cell phone. I called into this little Inuit hamlet called Ulukakto, which is the closest thing near us, and just. You know, I called my contact there. I got a weather report, and he's like, listen, even if this was a total emergency situation, like planes haven't been taking off here, you know, the closest rescue, search and rescue is, is the uh, Hercules. Um, they'd throw you some, some rescue equipment, and that's out of Winnipeg, which is a four-hour flight from here. And so, you know, even even with all this modern, you know, rescue stuff and equipment we have, you, you're still, if Mother Nature wants to slam the door on you, you know, you're absolutely for 20 years bent gate mountaineering has been outfitting climbers skiers backpackers and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need whether climbing an 8,000 meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup bent gate is here to help Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check Bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small.
kind of going back to the Explorer thing a little bit, I think about, yeah, as you're describing that and, you know, we, not to diminish anything that you've done, obviously that's, you know, you've gone through a ton just in what you described, but I'm thinking about people out there doing this without some of the, the quality equipment that we have these days, you know, things like, mm-hmm. you know, proper canoes and, and, uh, set phones and that kind of stuff. I just, I can't imagine you ever, are you ever out there just thinking, how in the hell did these people do this? You know, this is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think just the skills that we, that we lose now, like back then, you know, people knew how to build birch bark canoes, right? So, you know, if canoe broke, you could build a new one. So, I mean, we have these amazing canoes made out of high-tech plastics and materials that can crush around a rock and bounce back to shape. You know, they didn't have that, but, you know, the added skills they had to have to be able to paddle these things and pour tars in more often, and if worse comes to work, build a new one, are just skills that are lost to the modern generations. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and just to think, I mean, what what you explained and what you went through is what ninety nine point nine percent of the the public won't do in the first place. You know, even with the good equipment, so it really mm-hmm. it really puts that in perspective. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you just went through a, a pretty crazy story. There is there another one um, of a time when things just simply didn't go right? I'm sure there's a, a handful of them. Can you share another one? Well. Um... I guess I could share another one that we weren't on a, a crazy expedition. It's actually kind of funny, um, but we were just uh, in the bush um, close to where I grew up uh, in, in Ontario. And uh, my brother and I had a couple ladies with us and we brought them to show them this cool place where there's these big rock crevices in the ground and, and these caves you can climb into these rock crevices. So me and my brother, you know, being, you know, like, hey, ladies, we're going to go down to these caves. And, you know, we're probably about uh, 40, 24 at the time. And my brother ducks down and he starts crawling into this cave. And it's completely pitch black in there. And and so I start crawling in after him. And he goes, in yeah, Jim, you know, there's some weird crap in here. And, you know, we see this kind of animal poop. I wasn't really sure what it was. And then he sees a, a perch, a fish there, too. And then, you know, I start getting kind of a weird feeling, like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be here. Anyways, next thing you know, we hear this wild, like, just a, like a, a <laughs> like, just an angry freaking cat. Now, we don't have mountain lions here, thank God it wasn't that. I mean, there might be the odd one, but... We were basically face-to-face with a link. So we got the hell out of there as fast as we can. And now the part where we're – you never heard the explanation, uh, the thing, uh, slow down to speed up. So we're trying to scramble up this rock cliff, and we're just, like, scraping our finger. Like, we had to slow down to get up this thing again. And the girls we were with, they heard the noise from down in the rock crevice and in the cave. It was so loud they heard the noise that by the time we got out of the cave, they were already gone. They just they just bailed on us <laughs> and left us there. So, I mean, Rightfully the thing so. is the, the cat was probably as scared as uh, of, of us as we were of it. Like, it wasn't coming out to attack us or anything, but, you know, we also were, weren't feeling overly safe. Yeah. That's like one of those bad dreams where you just simply can't run fast enough and your feet are slipping underneath you and you just, it's, it's not happening for you. Yeah. Hey, that's exactly what it was like pretty much. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Let's go into, uh, what it is you do, uh, meaning what your, the site is that you run, um, what you're writing for and contributing to. Tell me a little bit about, about yourself and your projects. 
Okay, well, I'm uh, right now. I'm, I'm actually uh, I have a series called the well, which I shot on the East Natasquan. It's going to be called Quebec Côte Nord Adventure, and there's this area in Quebec that's called the North Coast Region. It's the north coast of the St. Lawrence and the Gulf of the St. Lawrence. It's mountainous. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And I took a float plane into Labrador and paddled down the east branch of a river called the Natashquan, which has been paddled by one guy in 1990. And before that, um, probably no one since uh, the native people used to travel on the land before they moved into reserve in the 40s. Um, so you can imagine the Portage trails weren't too uh, well-worn, which uh, was actually pretty difficult, but, you know, very a beautiful river. And I took my girlfriend with me. It was her first tough trip, and I took my dog in a float plane. So I think, you know, we got some interesting uh, component between the dog running along the, the side and jumping when we go and back in the canoes. We go around rapids, and my girlfriend <laughs> telling me I'm crazy. And so I think I have an interesting video uh, series ready and a lot of great skills and tips that I use along the way. So that's in post right now. Um, I got a, a feature article coming out in Real Fishing Magazine in the winter edition, which will be on a, a trip to Algonquin Park, Ontario, uh, how to catch um, a brook trout and, and also a lot about spring whitewater paddling because, I mean, that's a great time to go paddle some rapids in the spring and Algonquin Park is an awesome place. And uh, I'm also a regular contributor with Outdoor Canada magazine, um, where uh, I write, uh, my last article was on the Tosogamy solo series, um, and just what I brought with me, and, uh, you know, what kind of gear, what kind of things, first aid tips, how to load your canoe, a little brief description of the story, and then sort of what kind of things you might need to try to do a, a hardcore solo expedition of your own, so... Um, that's kind of what I got on the go. And then a couple other things coming up um, this summer. I'm going to be shooting hopefully a television series um, on uh, uh, an expedition to cross the Labrador Peninsula, which will probably be a month-long trip. And um, a couple other little things too. So a lot of exciting stuff I'm working towards in the future too. All right. Um, so where is it? Other than the adventurer.ca, uh, your site, where, where else can people find your work? Well, actually, yeah, I'm starting to post a, a lot of things on my YouTube channel. I'm building up that right now. So that is uh, uh, Jim Baird, The Adventure. And uh, if you want to check that out and subscribe to it, I'm posting new videos weekly. And uh, uh, right now it's uh, mostly adventure-related uh, slash how-to videos. I'm going to be doing reviews, and they're going to be doing all kinds of different things there. So that should be pretty cool. And also uh, um, new stuff is posting all the time to my site, theadventure.ca. If you want to go on there and have a look, some great stories, videos, pictures, uh, the whole nine. So check it out. Right on. Yeah, you do a good job with that site. I was reading some some articles on it, and I actually ended up getting kind of kind of hooked and uh, and and not leaving it. But uh, some of the stuff I was reading, it was uh, pretty intriguing. You have some good tips uh, on skills in there. Um, you're a bit of a survivalist too. You have some stuff in there about building snow caves. In fact, one of the things that you were showing about building a snow cave was uh, was placing the the sticks into it to gauge how how much you were carving out from the inside. And I thought that was pretty interesting. My my partner uh, Kurt, the other uh, co-host, business partner, and I 
have done some snow cave camping. And one of the things that happened was, you know, while hollowing out the inside of the snow cave, it collapsed in on me. And you're right. It is completely heartbreaking because you, you spent all this time shoveling the snow into a pile and, you know, starting to carve it out. And then the thing just dumps down on you. So I'm going to have to use that, uh, that stick and twig trick next time. Yeah. You know, you stick the twig and just deep enough. So, you know, that, I mean, depends on how thick you want the wall. Some people build a Quincy snow cave big enough so you can walk over the top. Well, that way, when you're digging from the inside, if you stick a bunch of sticks in from the outside, as soon as you hit the end of a stick while you're inside the cave, you know to stop and to stop digging even more. And that way, the sides, the walls don't get too thin, you know. Um, You can also have one guy on the outside go and stick a stick in, you know, um, from the outside as one person is in the middle instead of sticking sticks all around it. Uh, But that works really well, especially if you're doing it on your own. Yeah, absolutely. I like that one. Since we're on that subject, uh, what other tips and tricks do you have that you could uh, throw people their way if they're they're out there doing these sort of adventures? Um, well, I guess uh, I guess it's fall right now, and um, so we're we're moving into winter. And one thing that I think is a great idea: a lot of people are just horrified with winter camping. Well, you know, there's all kinds of canvas tents on the market that come with collapsible stoves. And I think it is just the coolest thing to go with what we call hot tenting, where you either you take your own toboggan, you strap your stuff to a toboggan, you tow it yourself, or you get your dog to tow it, or, of course, you can get your snowmobile to tow it too, um, which makes life a little bit easier. And you get to a campsite and you set up this canvas tent with your stove in it, and it could be literally, you know, 40 below outside, and you will be roasting hot with this wood stove blazing in there, and, you know, you can uh, do all your cooking right on top of the stove too. So I think that's a really neat thing if you're interested in trying some winter camping. I'd say look into getting a hot tent and a stove. Um, also, uh, on top of that, I mean, there's so many different things that I can that uh, I can think of. But, um, you know, I don't know. Are you are you what are you what are you looking to do? You want to do some uh, some canoeing or what, what do you what do you sort of have in mind? Man, my problem is I have everything in mind. You know, part of the problem with hosting uh, and uh, podcasts like this is my bucket list keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And so, pretty much anything anybody talks about on the show, it gets added to my bucket list. So, well, I got I'm, one. For I'm an you. open book when it comes to that. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I got one for you. It's about food. Everybody likes food, right? Now, when I go on my my extended trips, I usually I try not to have really hard to prepare meals because most of the time you're really tired at the end of the day. You want something easy. Um, freeze dried meals are good because they're they're light. Um, so I try not to bring anything that's too hard to prepare. Uh, one of the things I do is I'll take my uh, like a mountain house or a freeze dried type of of food um, or dehydrate them myself with my own dehydrator and then I will buy a vacuum sealer and I will empty it out of the mountain house bags or the freeze-dried bags that they come in put it in the vacuum sealer bag and then seal it in there and it makes them way more compact especially good for backpacking and that way you can actually open the vacuum seal bag pour the boiled water into there and eat it right out of the uh, vacuum seal bag or 
put it into a bowl and pour your, your boiled water in the bowl to eat your meal. All you have to do with, uh, with um, uh, freeze-dried meals is add boiled water, stir it, and wait four minutes. Um, but if you want to do something a little more exciting, I like to do this when I bring friends out into the bush. In Canada, we have something called poutine, okay? And basically all it is is French fries with melted cheese and gravy on top of them. And I like right. to make these around the campfire. So basically what you do, you cut up some potatoes into uh, French fry shapes, Okay, and then you put a lot of oil in a frying pan. Okay, you put them in there, you fill it up with oil, you cook it over a stove, and you just get that oil sizzling. Basically the same way, almost think it's just your, your deep frying, the same way you're going to do beer-battered fish or something. Now, it's great if you have a basket spoon because that can get all the oil off of the, the fries as you scoop them up. So you get those nice and golden brown, nice and crispy. At the same time, you can heat up a can of gravy by the fire, or you can also use powdered gravy if you're trying to save weight where it's just add water. So you heat that gravy up by the fire, and then when your, your, your fries are just steaming hot, you got the oil drained out, you, put the, you add the, uh, the cheese to it. Cheese curds are the best. You have the cheese curds to these hot, steamy hot fries, and then you pour the hot gravy on top, add in a little bit of salt, stir it all around. You might just be a hero. Like, everybody will love you at camp because it is freaking delicious. So I suggest trying that. Probably not the healthiest thing you can eat. Um, but, hey, if you're doing a tough trip, uh, the calories never hurt. Yeah, you're out there burning it off. That's hilarious that you brought up poutine. You, you Canadians love your poutine. I still have not tried it. But the reason I laugh is that uh, we had a, a guest on here quite a while ago, Alan Carl. And Alan rode um, his BMW GS around the world. And he ended up turning it into a book. And it was all about food on the road, you know, food from every country. So whatever's, whatever uh, the kind of the main sought-after dish in that country is the one he featured in the book for that country. And he gave the recipe and a write-up and everything. And, of course, for Canada, it was poutine. So mm -hmm. uh, Kurt, the, uh, the other host of this podcast, uh, they just tried Alan Carl's recipe for poutine over the weekend. He sent me an image. It actually looked really good. So I'm going to have to put that on my list to try. Yeah, give it a shot, especially big in uh, French Canada. Um, you know, for, there's a lot of French communities in northern Ontario and, of course, Quebec. <clears throat> but I remember one time I did a trip to New York City, and um, – they had it on the menu somewhere down near like South Street Seaport or something like that. So I said, okay, I'll try it. Well, it was French fries with cheese whiz on top of them. And I was just like, this is an abomination. Like these people <laughs> need to, they need to figure this out. You know what I mean? But uh, it's easy to make. And, and it's a really cool thing to eat when you're, when you're by the campfire and delicious too. So, you know, good thing to try if you don't mind uh, doing a little extra work. That's funny. That's kind of how we uh, we view Philly cheesesteaks here in the states. You can you can have a perfect Philly cheesesteak and then you can just totally screw it up. If you oh yeah, it right, I've tried yeah, I've tried it both ways before, right? It's like amazing sometimes and not good the, the next time, right? So <laughs> that's right. It's a special touch. Well, I like that you brought up the tip about vacuum sealing the food, whether it be freeze dried food or not. Um, yeah. There is a, there is a company out there. I won't name the name, but. There's a company out there that sells freeze-dried foods for camping, but then they sell a pro version of it that is basically the same thing, but it's vacuum-sealed. Sure. And I think it's a fantastic idea, but it costs like another buck or two just simply because it's freeze-dried. So mm -hmm. the fact that you can 
you know, maybe empty the contents yourself into something else and, and freeze dry the stuff. Uh, or, I'm sorry, or vacuum, vacuum seal it. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, it, it, I don't know if it's, it's really, it's freeze dried or it, it's, it's just dehydrated, right? Dehydrated. So, you know, a lot, what a lot of people do is they'll buy a dehydrator. And if you're doing a long trip, suppose you're doing a, a month long trip or even a, a, you know, even a two month long trip where you're not going to be able to resupply. A lot of people, they will freeze dry all their food, not freeze dry, but sorry, um, <clears throat> dehydrate, they'll dehydrate all their food by themselves at home before they go out. And that makes the food shrink a little smaller. So you, you dehydrate, and then you vacuum seal it. So it shrinks a lot smaller and it's going to be a lot more lightweight, um, you know, when you head out there. Um, another thing uh, that I rely on a good amount now, you know, I don't, um, I try to, you know, practice catch and release fishing, especially when I catch some of the larger fish. But a lot of the time when I'm traveling a long river, I feel like if I catch, you know, one good eating size fish a day, um, not all from the same area, I'm not really putting a dent, especially in, in areas where hardly any people really travel through. And so I like to catch some fish. A lot of people, you know, they might not be used to fishing in rivers and they could be in a great fishing river and just, you know, cast in the, in the wrong space and not catch anything. So a great thing to do, I do on a trip when I want to be catching fish, is I bring a telescopic rod and a good reel. A lot of people, you know, they'll diss the telescopic rods, oh, they're cheap, they're crappy. I, I disagree. You get get a, a fiberglass telescopic rod. It's easy to access because easy to access is really important when you're on a trip because you can pull the rod out, cast, put it back in if you don't catch anything. And what you where you want to hit is the eddies, okay? So check the base of a waterfall, the base of a rapid, okay, especially where that water kind of pools into shore and starts to come back up river, okay. Those are the spots where where you're going to get fish. Sometimes behind mid-river boulders, even submerged mid-river boulders, not as likely as the shore eddy. So if you're going down the river, you just finished a portage or you run a rapid, pull out your telescopic rod, throw a few casts. I use like a MEP spinner, the small spinners, because they're great for every kind of species. A number two or number three, you're going to catch northern pike, you're going to catch walleye, brook trout, lake trout, you name it on those things. And, you know, that should that should ensure that if you try a few spots like that throughout the day, you don't have to sit there and, and try one spot for too long. You hit a bunch of eddies like that, you're going to have some fish cheap by the end of the day. Yeah, that's a good tip. I need to to take that with me. Uh, keep that in mind. I am terrible at fishing. I like to fish, but I'm terrible. I mean, my, I'm lucky if I catch a, a ride home at the end of the day. <laughs> about as good as I can do Oh, you now. can catch it the cold, eh? <laughs> That's right. You know, speaking of fish, I was watching, uh, I guess I was reading the article on uh, uh, stocking fish by hand. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. It was, uh, there was a, a piece of that story I didn't see coming, but it was about catching smaller fish in order to catch bigger ones. That yeah, was, absolutely. Uh, I was really intrigued. Absolutely. And believe it or not, it is possible to catch fish with your bare hands. And what's even more amazing is it's really not as hard as you might think. All you got to do is be really quiet because think about it, fish, especially in, in rivers or creeks or, you know, they're used to seaweed that, you know, they might be hiding in seaweed and seaweed will be brushing at them. Uh, logs will float over the head or, you know, half partially submerged logs will float beside them. So if you can kind of basically act like seaweed or a log and just basically come really, really slow, bring your hands really, really, really slowly up to a fish, you can actually even touch the fish you can actually touch its belly 
and it won't even move as it's just suspended sitting in one space in the water. Um, and so this is something that I've done. I'm not an expert. I'm not pulling 20 pound salmon out of the water, but I'm doing okay. And uh, one of the things that is also is also good is that you can do is catch minnows. People always want to try to catch minnows, but maybe you don't have a net. Try catching in one with your bare hands. Just really, really slow. All you need is one hand. You move your hand right up underneath it, and then when you're right there, boom, close your hand around, pull your hand out. Now, that one little fish, what's that going to do? That's not going to feed you in a survival situation, but most people in their survival kit, they're going to have a fishing hook. They're going to have a line. So big fish eat little fish. So if you can catch one minnow and you're about to starve, I mean, that could literally be the difference between life and death. So get out there and, and practice. I mean, it's a lot of fun. See if you can catch a fish with your bare head. Yeah. Hey, I might have more luck doing that, actually. I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, isn't there, isn't there a, like a saying that says it's as easy as fishing? Um, I, if there is one, I don't know it. Nobody's taught me that. And I, I refuse to accept that. It's well, true. it's a lie. Yeah. I mean, don't feel like people think it's so easy, but yeah, it's, it's, it can be at times. And you know, if you're catching little sunfish and they're biting like crazy, you're fishing <laughs> on the worm in a certain place, but you know, it's not, uh, it does take a little bit of skill and patience. So you can't expect to just go out there and be, you know, bass pro on your first day. You gotta, you gotta, uh, learn it a little bit. So don't beat yourself up if you're, if you're getting snagged all the time on day one, you know? There you go. Just be patient and enjoy your surroundings. I was going to mention that the other thing that, um, I think might interest people is, is everybody likes to get out there in, in a canoe. And a lot of people, they see a canoe in, you know, a, a old age retirement commercial nowadays. Well, I take canoes down some serious freaking white water, you know, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize what a canoe can do. And one of the interesting things that makes a canoe stable, it's think of like an outrigger canoe. You never see like, you know, in the South Pacific, they paddle those dugouts with the huge outriggers on the side. Right. The key is to, you kind of make your body like an outrigger. So that's why a canoe that's tippy can go down a rapid that a big stable motorboat is going to dump and upturn and crush on the rocks and never make it down. Um, so I think what's counterintuitive about being in a canoe is, is that you, the key to not tipping is to actually throw your body weight outside of the boat. What most people do when they feel the canoe tipping is they center their body weight and they grab the gunnels on either side and they try to stabilize the canoe. Really what you should be doing is throwing your body out of the boat and catching your body weight with your paddle, being able to trust your weight over the paddle. So if I'm dumping towards the side and paddling on, I just slap the, the water down directly below me with the flat side of the paddle. I slap the water and push myself back to even keel if I'm dumping towards the side and paddling. If I'm dumping away from the side and paddling on, I reach out with the paddle and pull a paddle directly into the side of the boat, and that stabilizes me rather than trying to grab the gunnels. And that's why, you know, I can run these raging rapids with, with currents that are throwing me left and right without tipping. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, the, it makes a lot of sense. The you can probably talk to a lot of avid canoeists, and they would they would consider that something that was kind of common sense and well known. But to have you explain it, it makes com you know makes complete sense. But unless well, a lot you of people don't paddle whitewater too, so unless you're into yeah, paddle true. whitewater, but once you know how to do that, you're going to be way safer on the lake. You're going to be safer if you're trying to paddle with your kids or your dog in the boat. You know what I mean? You're just basically going to dump way, way, way less if you know how to do that. But it, you know, it's the most useful when you're paddling whitewater. 
Yeah, that's cool. Winter is just around the corner. Do you have the outdoor performance wear that you need? Shed the layers and keep the warmth with Sport Hill Performance running, skiing, and outdoor apparel. Sport Hill gear is worn by Olympic champions and elite athletes. Independently owned since 1985, Sport Hill is passionate about clothing for the sports you love. Colorado Mountain Club members get the most out of the Colorado summers. We summit 14ers, enjoy relaxing fly fishing excursions, climb thousand foot rock faces, backpack through wilderness areas, explore the culture of Europe, raft through the Grand Canyon, and so much more. The Colorado Mountain Club teaches you the skills you need to safely maximize living in such an awesome outdoor playground, as well as connects you to thousands of other adventure-loving mountaineers. Founded in 1912, the Colorado Mountain Club acts as a gateway to the mountains for novices and experts alike. It's the perfect time to sign up for a membership. For more information, go to cmc.org. That's cmc.org. go back to uh food and water specifically um this is more self-serving than anything what do you do as far as water and filtration i'm still looking for the right answer when i'm out there well you know um uh now i probably shouldn't say this but a lot of the time i just chug the lake water (laughs) now okay so if you're going to drink lake water or or river water is always worse to drink than lake water because everything kind of washes into the river and it turns things up. So you're more likely to have, you know, uh, a poop in there or something like that. Like some and, and the main concern when you're even in, in clean areas in the far north is something called uh, giardia, which is also known as beaver fever. Now, funnily enough, beavers don't actually carry beaver fever. You can only catch it from a carnivore are an animal that each meat, so you know bears, wolves, weasels, and a lot of the time humans. Uh, but the parasite, it, it, it sounds all cute, by the way, beaver fever, but really it's like horrific. Like you are, you're not a happy camper if you get this no. right, and you don't want to get it in the middle of nowhere. So it's better always to a boil your water. Now people think you have to boil it for ten minutes. You only have to boil your water has to be brought to a rolling boil for one minute. If you're going to take water right from the lake, a better a lake than a river. Uh, don't do it from shore. Go out to the middle and take it, you know, a couple inches from the top um, because your chances are that any jardia parasites has, have uh, floated to the bottom or are unexistent in the middle of the lake. Um, the other thing I like to do now, pumping pumping works, but the problem with a pump is that they they start to jam up. So a great thing you can do is you can put the a coffee filter. So if you get a coffee filter, you can wrap it around the intake and just put an elastic or tie a string around there. And that'll keep all the little particles, especially in a silty river, like some of the rivers you get out west, like in Colorado, for example, 
um, that'll, that means that all those little particles don't get into your coffee filter. Or you could use a pot to scoop the water up, maybe even spin it around in a circle over your head. That'll send, the, that'll send all, the, uh, all the sand and all, the, all the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the little granular bits into the bottom. Or just let it sit there in the pot and pump out of that when, when it settles, when the sediment settles. Um, and you know, you, and you use your water pump or that, which is great. But you know, I've had a water pump break on me because I didn't do the things I just explained to you, and I got jarred because I was drinking just river water for you know over two weeks straight with a broken pump. Um, so, because that's a little labor intensive, what what I kind of do most of the time now is I just bring the water tablets. And uh, there's different kinds. You can bring iodine drops too. That kind of tastes a little funny. Um, the, the water tablets, it doesn't taste great. It kind of makes it taste like tap water. It's basically chlorine. And the best kind, you can just you read, the, read the instructions. The best kind, you can just drop one in. You wait a half an hour, and you're good to go. And, and I find that's really the quickest and the easiest thing, um, to, and that will keep you hydrated because having to pump water all the time can be a little more labor-intensive. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's funny you say don't take it out of the river if you can avoid it. We couldn't avoid it this weekend, but I just got back from a weekend in the backcountry on my ADV bike. And uh, of course, we drank out of the river all weekend. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm filtering it through a, essentially a uh, filter filtration straw. It's a it's a uh, drinking uh, oh, yeah, water bottle. Oh, yeah, that's totally pump. fine. That's totally fine. Yeah. If you're pumping it or you're using the, draw, uh, using the drops or you're using the tabs, you could you take it out of the river, no problem. I'm just saying, if you're not going to treat it, you know, you're <laughs> right. probably better off to get it out of a lake than you are out of a river. But you know, like I mean, I've I've caught and uh, I've gotten jardy another time. <laughs> this is the second time. Now I've gotten a third time. Okay, but I I mean, I caught it <laughs> off drinking what I think was you know uh, northern BC or Alaska actually, northern BC and Alaska mountain runoff streams. You know. Um, supposed to be the, the cleanest thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yet, I, yet I've drinking lake water uh, in northern Ontario for two weeks straight and never had a problem, right? So, you know, I guess you never know, and it just it's usually not worth the risk. Some people are can handle it better than others. Maybe if you've been, you know, digesting a little bit of poop slowly for the, that'd be an interesting blog, eh? Like, how much poop should you add to your glass <laughs> every day so you never catch it, but you you gain immunity to to uh, beaver fever? Um, maybe I'll let you try that one though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, thanks. I'll keep up with my filtration. And I'm thinking there's kind of, there's probably a drinking game going on with the word poop in this podcast, and uh, that would be the key word. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't say the S word, so you got to. I'm just I'm, 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 you know. No, I appreciate you not doing so. <laughs> no, no problem. No problem. All right. Um, um, tell me about the Kennel Trail a little bit. I was uh, I was looking at your ATV journey down that uh, with a buddy. That looked pretty fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I did it with a guy named Mike uh, Shea. He actually um, was a, a video editor for Field and Stream magazine at the time. And uh, the the kennel is really interesting because there's a trail built by the U.S. Uh, Engineers Corps during World War II. Now on the Mackenzie River in like northern northern Canada, still way past the road system today, they found sweet crude. And now they wanted to get the sweet crude through the mountains to the Alaska Highway, which they're also building during World War II. And that way they could get that uh, uh, to a refinery, which is in Whitehorse, and then that way they could get gas. 
eventually into Alaska um, to protect against a possible attack from the Japanese in Alaska. So they built this trail, ancient uh, Diné mountain passes. People were brought up from Missouri and Oklahoma that had never experienced anything. We're talking about weather is cold in the winter, pitch black, never gets light, minus 60, minus 70, okay, it'll be. And and then in the summertime, you know, horrific insects, <laughs> and like some of the most terrible conditions kind of thing. And it was one of the biggest feats that they managed to build this uh, CANEL pipeline trail. CANEL stands for Canadian Oil. And they built bridges. And you can actually navigate in a truck. Now, unfortunately, never really worked properly because the, the pipe they laid was so small and it didn't get much oil and oh, because of the, the changing temperatures it cracked and, and it was leaking and by the time they are finished the war was pretty much over anyway and so um, it never really worked that well but it was an incredible feat and so today you can travel this is the most remote trail in the world because it doesn't go anywhere now how could a trail be remote really nowadays right well now all the bridges are washed out and so you can only get there on foot or by horseback. You can only you can drive a portion of it and the the Northwest Territory section of it, you can only really travel on foot or on horseback. And we tried to do it by ATV. A couple people have done it now by ATV. You have to hit it when the weather is right. You have to hit it when it's low water or you need to use helicopter support. When we had it, it was the highest water level that you, uh, they had in years. And so here I am, I brought like a, a donut kind of raft and I'm building a, a platform. I'm building like a log raft and I'm using ratchet straps to attach this inflatable donut raft with my ATV in the middle and I'm ferrying this freaking ATV with my entire outfit across a raging rapid, probably 70 yards across with not a rapid but a raging whipping current in the river and high water in the middle of the Northwest Territories. And, uh, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you're like, man, if my rope breaks here, like, we're going to be in a lot of trouble, you know? Um, so there were some pretty hairy moments of it, and it was a pretty, it was a tough trip, but at the same time, it was awesome. Like, it was, it was beautiful just being out there in some of the North America's finest scenery, really. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I was watching that that little episode of uh, taking the ATV across the river like that. I was like, that's you know, it's impressive that you guys built that raft and had the ingenuity and and the the thought to go through that. But then it's like that's part of the the, the problem. Now you got to get that thing through this river that, like you said, is moving very quickly. So that's a that's mm-hmm. a pretty impressive feat. Yeah, we got it across one. We got it across one braid. And then it gets the the second larger. We got both of them to a gravel bar in the middle. Now it's raining, and the gravel bar is getting smaller and smaller. And we got to get it across the second braid, okay? And now what happened was our line was too, our rope was too thick, and we couldn't pull it up river because the guy, the other guy, Mikey, swam to the other side of the river, and he's trying to pull this line up to tie it to our anchoring point, but the river was pushing on this rope, which is strung 70 yards across the river more that he couldn't tie it to the right spot. So we had to, we tried an alternative spot. And then when we ferried the ATV, it didn't make it the other side. So here's our, here's our rig and our half of our outfit sitting in the middle of this river, right? Floating on this raft in the middle of the river. So I had to, by this time it was dark. I had to jump in and swim out to it and was holding another rope, tie it on and swim back to the gravel bar and pull the whole rig out of the freaking river onto the gravel bar to save the thing. Um, so yeah, it got pretty intense at times. It was a lot of work. <laughs> it looked awesome though, man. I wanted to be there. Yeah. All right. 
How about a funny story to wrap the show up with? Okay. Um, oh, funny story. I can I can never think of them right away. Um, mm, a funny, clean story too, eh? Yeah, clean would be preferable. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about that one uh, we were talking about there about um, with the uh, with the snake and the, the brook trout? Is that is that not really funny particularly? Is it? No, I, I. You know, it may scare some people, but I think it's funny. You can share that one. Actually, I wanted to go into that story. Okay, cool. Um, so my brother and I, we were uh, we we're, we we're on the Appalachian Trail um, in uh, New Jersey, actually near the Delaware Water Gap. And we were walking up this one portion. There's this beautiful little creek there just coming down out of the Pocono Mountains. And uh, we were kind of walking up rocks on the creek. And we, we see this big snake that looks like it's got a chipmunk, like it swallowed a chipmunk, we think. And it's just sort of lying there sunning itself. Um, anyways, whatever, we keep moving along and we see a little flutter and there's brook trout in there. Well, let's see if we can catch some of these brook trout with our bare hands, of course, is what we think, right? So we start going. We're not we're not having really any good luck. The water's so clear and and it's so shallow. But one of the things you can do with hand fishing is feel under a rock and see if you can you can slowly kind of brush or touch a fish, which is possible. So I'm I'm slowly putting my hand underneath this rock, and I I you know I'm, I'm really feeling good, like something's gonna happen. And then I touch. To just slightly touch what it seems like a, a smooth kind of silky bro like tickle it a brook trout and I'm like oh man like you know I think I'm in position here like this is this is actually going to work right and all of a sudden I just feel uh, something brush against my hand and some motion in the water and I turn my head to my side and I just see about two feet down from my face that will actually probably about a foot down my face and, and just this big northern water snake just emerges right from underneath the rock and uh right like t- you know literally a foot below my face most of people might freak i might have freaked out so I, I looked over my brother and i explained to him what happened i'm like you know this is just oh my god this thing just scared it away and then kind of at that time we we realized that um uh that the the, the snake we saw uh earlier um didn't have a chipmunk in its stomach that it would have had a brook trout um, so I guess the snakes are a little bit better at fishing than I am. Now, this one didn't catch it, or else we would have seen it in its mouth. But um, either way, we messed up each other's fishing experience. <laughs> yeah, he's like, man, I've been waiting for that thing for an hour now. Yeah, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Right on. Well, that story and uh, plenty of others can be found at theadventurer.ca, your website. Uh, I encourage people to go check that out because it really is neat reading. And if you're into this kind of stuff, uh, Jim Baird is definitely one to follow to uh, to get your fix. Um, people can find you on YouTube if they just search Jim Baird, The Adventurer, and then on Facebook at JB Adventurer. Uh, JB Adventure is my Twitter handle. I post a lot of uh, great picks and, and tips and uh, some of my articles and stuff like that, too, on my Facebook page if you want to check that out. Okay, right on. I will get uh, I will get all the correct links uh, linked up in our show notes of the podcast. Everybody can click on those and come follow you. And like I said, man, if you're, if you're a listener and you're into these kind of stories, go check out Jim's stuff. He's an excellent writer, uh, great, great stuff on video and, and photos, and he's, uh, he's doing a great job. So, Jim, I wish you all the luck and uh, appreciate you coming on and, and speaking with us. Great stories. Okay, well, hey, thanks a lot, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, and take care. Thank you so much. 
Would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us. Also, take a minute and help us spread the word about the Adventure Sports Podcast. Do us a favor and go on to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. Everything helps. Thanks for being a listener. Listener.